0: Welcome back to Supreme Myths. I am very excited today to have as my guest someone I've never met in person, uh, but someone who um, is definitely one of the brightest and most prominent young constitutional law scholars uh, in the United States, Professor Pavan Adut at the University of Virginia Uh, is a graduate of the University of Virginia, a graduate of Columbia Law School. She clerked on the Court of Appeals. She clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And in 2022, Yale Law Journal, I think correctly, uh, named her um, the Emerging Scholar of the Year, I think it is, or some some type thing. But welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the kind introduction and for also bringing me here for this conversation.
0: And I should mention that I learned just before we started recording um, that this That Pavon is in Port Washington, New York, Long Island, which is actually where I grew up from the age of four to the age of 20. Uh, And we had a nice time reminiscing about restaurants that were open in 1971 and are still open today, which is which is kind of amazing. All right. Let's begin. We're going to talk about the. You've written two articles, even more than that, but you have you have two recent articles, one. Well, kind of not great placements. One in the Harvard Law Review and one in the Yale Law Journal. Um, They are both great articles. One is called Separation of Powers Avoidance. That's in Yale. One is called Enforcement Lawmaking and Judicial Review. That's in the Harvard Law Review. We're going to spend most of our time on separation of powers, but hopefully we'll get to the Harvard Law Review article as well. But before we start all of that, you clerked for Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Um, How was that? Any interesting stories to tell? What kind of experience was it for you?
1: I mean, it was the job of a lifetime, especially because when I was clerking for her, she was already sort of the notorious RBG. Mm -hmm. Um, So sometimes we'd uh, go out to the opera or something like that and there would be people trying to like get photos from over our shoulders to get a picture of the justice. And I didn't really think that like that was the crowd that was trying to Instagram (laughs) her as people who would be at the opera. But um, I just, I remember one of these very like instrumental pivotal times with the justice She was giving a speech to some uh, high school students um in the conference room and there are portraits of the chief justices hanging around and she would go around and sort of say this is chief justice marshall and talk about what it was that the chief justice had done during his tenure what he stood for and as we were walking back from the event to go to chambers i turned to her and i said justice there were a lot of men's portraits hanging in that room and she just stopped and looked at me and she said these things take time, Pavon. And I just felt like I had, like, my, my like, quintessential RBG moment. And I was like, okay, you're right. I shouldn't complain about anything ever. About
0: <laughs> well, you know. Things taking time because just see. No, I think that's actually a fabulous story because that was really her modus operandi, and it things take time. And, and I'm going to do a little digression here, but um, – In the spring of whatever year that Windsor was decided, the case that um, uh, overturned DOMA, everyone knows there was also a big same-sex marriage case out of California. And Justice Ginsburg ran around the country in that spring to various law schools telling law school audiences, not talking about that case, of course, because it was coming up, but talking about Roe and saying how Roe was too fast in one fell swoop. And then when push came to shove in the same-sex marriage cases, she put off the California case by joining the conservatives in an opinion, I'm sorry, I don't believe she believed, um, on standing, um, to avoid doing too much too soon because she understood things take time. And she was right. And two years later, Obergefell comes down and the row backlash didn't really happen. Is that a fair summary of that event?
1: I mean – did, did the backlash happen to Obergefell? I think it's up for debate whether that we're seeing that backlash sort of unfold a little later sure. now. Sure. But yeah, it was definitely a slower progression than Roe was. And I just wanna defend my boss, not from you, <laughs> but from anyone who's listening. People would look to her criticism of Roe and say, see, even RBG didn't believe in Roe. And I don't think that's what it was. I think it was the the result that she wanted. I don't want to put words in her mouth, but I just want to highlight what it is that you said. She thought it was too much, too soon for people to accept it. Yes. Yes. Not that it was wrong.
0: We agree 100% about that, which is a terrible way to start a podcast. But yes, we agree 100% on that. The worst. Well, (laughs) right. I mean, I say all the time, I mean, you know, she was clearly a pro-choice feminist. One should go to those people when trying to figure out these things. And I've been a big critic of Roe. I'm pro-choice all the way down. I met my wife giving a talk to Planned Parenthood. But and my mother was pro-choice 1971 when I was 13, and I remember that, and, and so was I. But I think Roe and Casey did a lot of damage across the board. We don't debate that today. Um, but I do think Obergefell would have been much—not uh, Obergefell, but the Prop 8 case out of California— would have been much harder to swallow to the American public had it come down two years earlier the same day as Windsor. I think she was exactly right to do what she did, and I'm glad she did it that way. Even if we got Trump eventually, it would have been worse. I think. <laughs> yeah.
1: Should we get to the disagreement portion of the podcast? The <laughs> I guess we should are really hear okay. <laughs> So you wrote
0: yes. So you wrote an article for Yale called "Separation of Powers Avoidance," um, and there's so much in here. We can't. I don't want to give anyone the impression that we're going to do a major summary of this article today because we can't do that in one hour. Um, I recommend everybody read it. You can find it at the Yale Law Journal. It is excellent. Let's start with this. Um, you call this, the, the I think the federal courts in separation of powers cases participants as opposed to arbiters. Do I have that correct? Either yes. Way or, yeah, okay. What, what, why are they parti- We think of judges as arbiters, not participants. So can you explain that?
1: Yeah. So the Constitution, in the sort of school of uh, school of rock house way, <laughs> did I get that right? I think so. Schoolhouse rock. Yes. There we go. Schoolhouse rock kind of way. Uh, divides power of like the judicial branch, the executive branch, and the legislative branch. And they're supposed to be sort of duking it out and fighting it out through time. Now, sometimes we see executive power and legislative power being adjudicated by courts. And we think that the courts are giving us sort of neutral rules in these cases, and that they're umpires saying, okay, you win Congress or you win, more often, you win executive branch. And I don't think that's true, at least in the subset of cases that I talk about um, in the paper, because they're also worried about judicial power in these cases. So they're not there to just call balls and strikes. They're there to call balls and strikes and make sure no balls hit the umpire. (laughs) Right.
0: That's a great line. (laughs) OK. That's going in the that's going in the tag notes. Go ahead.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And. So when I say that they're participants in the separation of powers, what I mean is that courts participate in separation of powers by deciding cases. The only other way that they participate is when the chief justice presides over an impeachment trial. But we can't expect sort of push and pull without a case. So when they decide a case, they're in the game, right? They're not just there to sit back and watch.
0: So, so when I read that in your piece, I, that I, I, I'm i sorry, but we agree 100% again, so it's getting boring. But what I don't understand, what I don't understand, honestly, is how that's different than individual rights cases, because I feel like the court's role in our system of government is front and center if the issue is abortion or affirmative action or free speech. So what's the difference?
1: I think the difference or what I'm trying to focus on in this particular paper is to talk about sort of the total power of the government in a structural way and how it is that that's divided up. I do think that there could be a more arm's length view. Let's take out constitutional rights cases or something like that, and just look at like a private law case where you have a contract being decided by uh, by a court between two different parties. I don't think the, judge is participating in the same way in that dispute as it is when it's talking to congress and talking to the president and saying one of you wins and the other one loses it can be more arm's length and i also think that the individual rights cases are somewhere in there and they're they're not quite aligned with the structural piece they're a little bit further down on the spectrum and i won't say like right next to the private law cases um but it's not like judicial power is sort of involved in their decision making as much as
0: that, when they're deciding yeah
1: to tell different parties you win and lose
0: I guess although I think that line certainly gets fuzzy depending on the case for example and I've been thinking about this a little bit I mean your article made me think about so much that but- so much wants to pour out. Um, steel seizure case, which I view as one of the most, I mean, I know this is ancient history to most people now, not, you know, but to me, it's one of the most important separation of powers cases and orig- anti-originalism cases of all time. So I want to ask you about that. When we get these blended cases, I mean, so the president wants to do X, someone comes in and says, you can't because Congress has basically told you, you can't. That's not really what happened in that case, but that's the argument the court adopted. Um, I mean, everybody considers that to be one of the top five, if not top three, separation of powers cases of all time. It's also an individual rights case. It's also an individual rights case. How do we blend those two things?
1: Yeah. So I want to first just make something really clear about my paper that I mean, I tried to do in the text. And I've like, whenever I workshop this, I have to say it like 10 times before people in the room will actually believe me. (laughs) Right. Like, what I'm really trying to get at is, Congress or high-level executives actually participating in the case. And I say that courts try to avoid telling Congress, like, we're going to quash your subpoena or telling the president, you must do this, you must do that. There are lots of cases that involve executive power or involve congressional power that are brought by private individuals. And Youngstown is one of those, the steel seizure case. It's Youngstown sheet and tube versus Sawyer. Right. Like we have a private company that's in there. So one of the things that's like bananas to me when I realized this, I mean, like as a scholar, it's obviously true. But like, let's say like eight years ago when I realized this as like a new lawyer 10 years ago. So much separation of powers law is decided incidentally in cases that like the people who bring them, they just want to win. Like Youngstown just wanted to win. Right right it was it wasn't about whether the president had power to do this it was about can you close our plant like can you seize right or can you not that's the right. only thing that they cared about and so i have a sort of separate thread of things that i like to write about and think about and more talk about which is what does it mean when private citizens are the ones bringing these cases and i don't know if i've actually answered your question in any of this
0: uh, no but i think yeah, you did. It's,
1: it's think- bananas to have separation of powers doctrine sort of decided and cemented and brought by private parties who really don't care. They only care that they're aligned with Congress to the extent that it helps them, not to the extent that, like, Congress's power is protected. And I think that's amazing.
0: And I take it you put Zivotovsky, this is a little bit for the non-lawyers in the room. Just give us two exactly. minutes here and then we'll get back <laughs> uh, for the for Zivotovsky. Same thing. Right. Major foreign yeah. policy dispute, but brought by a private. Now, my opinion is there's no st- under current doctrine. There was no standing in that case. Court decided anyway. Um But um same thing as seal seizure. Right. We shouldn't have separation of powers, principles, especially in that case, decided by private litigants with almost no injury or no injury at all. effectively.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to say shouldn't be decided. I haven't quite thought about I, I haven't quite settled on my views yet but i think that every time they are decided in those cases we should really think about what that means and whether they're litigated like as zealously as you want them to be litigated before a court okay in settling the principles but for the non-lawyers it's a case where someone had on their passport printed that they were born in jerusalem and not jerusalem comma israel and he is the one who pressed forward whether the president or congress could decide right. whether Jerusalem was in Israel for purposes of your passport.
0: So having having committed podcast malpractice, I'll go back now and try to undo that. Um, separation of powers, avoidance. I should have asked, the first question should have been, what do you mean by avoidance? And you just kind of raised that issue now, so that's what triggered it. What do you mean by avoidance?
1: By avoidance, I mean that the court tries to avoid, and I've now committed description uh (laughs) malpractice by using the word but they try not to get involved and tell one branch of the government that they must do something they try not to compel coordinate branch officers to take action
0: and you're generally not in favor of that
1: so in the paper and i'm very skeptical of the fact that they avoid yeah But I think the more important thing is to recognize that the courts are avoiding. And when they avoid, the decisions that they render mean that one party or the other is getting a windfall in the case. So if we're not gonna tell the president you have to respond to this subpoena in Congress, for example, then it looks like we just said the president wins and Congress doesn't have the subpoena power in this context so the worst thing we can do is take that decision and say congress doesn't have subpoena power in any context right Right. no what's actually going on is the court doesn't want to tell the president what it has to do they want congress and the president to figure it out but congress might have that power and we shouldn't say hey course, you've just said that Congress doesn't have that power. And that's the baseline. That's definitely not the baseline when you read through these cases.
0: Right. And, and, and what you're saying describes exactly what they did with the congressional subpoenas to Trump. Right. I mean, they they said exactly. go back and do it over again and all that stuff. And by the time they did, it was all kind of moot anyway.
1: Right. Exactly. Yeah. It, that's 100 percent true.
0: The part of the paper Separation of Powers of Orange that talks about that is really powerful. And I, I really urge people um, when I read that, I, I had an immediate kind of emotional reaction that I haven't thought through yet. So you'll probably be able to devastate my question, but um, <laughs> you you spent a lot of time making the case that the court doesn't want to tell the president or Congress what they have to do, um, and they try to avoid doing that. And you go through a whole bunch of cases, and, you, and and I think you present strong evidence of that thesis. But here's where I get a little a little not loss is the wrong word, A, a, a a little unclear. But they tell the president and Congress what, mostly the president, but sometimes the Congress, what they can't do all the time. And that's getting, in my opinion, critical. Like that's getting to crisis stage, the major questions doctrine and administrative, so on and so forth. I think telling them they can't do something often is just as powerful, just as political, and just as impactful as telling them they have to do something. Where does that fit into your thesis?
1: So, in a very deeply unsatisfying way, I'll tell you that's not part of the thesis at all. Okay. Right? Like I, I carve out sort of the law related to cases where it's not about compelling coordinate branch officers, but Um, I mean, the Harvard paper sort of gets into that stuff a little bit more for sure. Um, and one of the things that I think is really powerful about our judicial system and just about like our American system of law is that when a court issues a decision, the president and the administrative state, they listen. But like, what actually is part of them listening to that decision and taking it to have the force of law? It's basically just like a very strong norm that we have. So the rule of law as as it relates to the branches of government don't actually have the force of law. There's nothing compelling anyone to listen to it. And so I just, want to highlight that like the difference between the cases I talk about in the paper of compelling an officer to do something I, and like sort of the, the legal holdings of actually like Department of Education, you can't have this policy. One of those things might be a lot easier to get the, the government officials to actually do, right? And to listen to in a normative sense Um, And I think that's why the avoidance that I talk about in my paper is so strong. Like, I I don't have evidence. I can surmise that one of the things going on in these cases is that the judiciary thinks if they tell Trump, go respond to this subpoena in front of Congress, that he might not do it. And then what happens? We have a crisis of a different sort, because we realize that, like, really and truly, the rule of law has no force of law.
0: Well, that answer, very thoughtful answer, raises about 10,000 issues about my entire career, what I've been writing about for 30 years, um, and I, I don't even know where to start. I mean, it was a great answer, and I don't, I, I'm trying to figure out where to, where to respond, um, because, so I've had a longstanding debate with Professor Steve Sachs and Will Bode of Originalism Is Our Law fame, and Professor Christopher Green who has been on this podcast? Um, who's also an originalist about whether Supreme Court decisions are actually law? And the three of them—one at Harvard, one at Chicago, one at Ole Miss—all three nationally known, prominent, you know, um, constitutional law professors, especially Bowden Sachs. Um, Chris won't mind me saying that. Um, of course, it's law. You're, look, if, if Supreme Court decisions weren't law, Georgia would have outlawed abortion 40 years ago. So. When, so I'm not sure that, I guess, I guess the reason I mention all that is, so the difference between EPA, you are not allowed to enforce this rule against X because of the made-up, fabricated major questions document that shouldn't even exist. But you can't do that. You're not allowed. And President Trump, you have to report to this, you know, subpoena. Um, you know, Mark Tustin, I'm sure you know, just wrote an open letter telling Biden to disobey the Supreme Court. I think it would be very easy. For the EPA to say, sorry, we're going to enforce this rule anyway. What are you going to do? Send, send the National Guard out? You know, Send the military to stop us from doing it? So I'm not – is the difference that stark the one you're making?
1: I think it's like the rule of law and the force of law. Like I agree with you. I think of course this is law when the court says, hey, you can't do this. Or the right. Constitution says X or Y, even if we disagree. Of course I think that that's law. But – what can you do when the person that you're telling that this is law is the enforcer of law
0: it's a great question right? we
1: just have to trust that the system is going to move forward right so I think law has a lot of different components there's and I mean like this is not as well thought as I wanted to be before having to articulate it to it's okay
0: that's my people life who do know
1: me <laughs> but there's rule of law and there's force of law and I think you and I as private citizens probably feel the force of law a little bit more than someone who also has power to interpret law in their job. Right. I think the president is interpreting, and I'm using the term president broadly, right? The president is interpreting law all the time. Yeah. The president is making law all the time and so is Congress. Um so does the court. And so, so and so does the court. Yeah. yeah. Of course. Yeah. Um
0: so that's fascinating. So, so 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 is it your view in in, in this piece or or in general that All things being, this is a bad question. I'll give you some hypothetical facts in a second, but all things being equal, all things being equal, is it generally a good or bad thing to avoid?
1: All things being equal, and this is not in the paper, but I, I think it probably is the right thing for the court to be avoiding this some of the time, so long as, so long as sometimes they don't avoid And one of the biggest problems that I see now is Congress sort of being disempowered a little bit. Some of the rules of the game, I think, need to change to allow the court to articulate congressional power so that it can start, so Congress can actually start using it. Yeah. Um, And so... I would say it's probably good for the court to be avoiding stepping into these disputes all the time because what do we want? We want Congress to be suing the president and for courts to be saying constantly, like, go enforce the subpoena. No, but we probably want the courts to say sometimes these subpoenas are enforceable and then allow Congress and the president to negotiate right. on a more level playing field.
0: So that's my big question about this article. That Your answer there just links to the, the- – Big question I have and, and, and I think it's um, it 's a bigger question than your article purports to answer, so i 'm not suggesting people go to this article and find your answer in this article, but you are an expert on separation of powers by the way, as an aside, I started teaching in one thousand nine hundred and ninety one and when i start and, and for at least the first decade of my teaching, federalism was everything it was all about federalism, and now I think it is all about separate most of it 's about separation of powers, which is an interesting transition and I just want to make that so you're in the right place at the right time. I guess is what, is what I'm saying. So can I throw a hypothetical at you that actually exists, um, and I want to filter it through your thinking, if that's okay? And this is also okay. relevant to me because we're taping this Thursday at 10 o'clock, um, probably out Friday night. I am um, talking to the Economist in three hours about what happened, what's happening in Georgia with Donald Trump. So okay, so and this raises some really interesting separation of powers issues. What's,
1: what's
0: happening with Georgia? I'm going to. What's so, with- <laughs> so, <laughs> so in Georgia, he is going to be indicted almost certainly for all kinds of state crimes involving interference with elections because of his phone call to Rasperger to find exactly the amount of votes that he needed, his call to the governor and various other things, fake electors, all this stuff. Here's something I'm worried about. Georgia law makes it a crime for public officials to lie in their public capacities. Obviously, it's not a crime to lie in your personal capacity. But if you're a public official doing a public job, you're not allowed to lie about things. If they charge him with that, he's going to argue two things. The first, one we can ignore he's going to remove the case to federal court or try to under the federal officer removal statute. Just ignore that for a second. On the merits, the Supreme Court has held, as you know, of course, but just for the non lawyers, that presidents are immune for life and forever from civil suits for actions taken in their official capacity. He's going to make the argument that he's immune from criminal suits for all actions taken in his official capacity. If the crime requires you to be acting in your official capacity, which I think Georgia state law might require, we have a big problem here. And that's going to be a question that the court's going to have to resolve. Is the president immune for life from criminal liability for official acts taken in office, I believe the court has not resolved that question yet. How do we think about that through your prism?
1: Okay, you've given me a really tough one.
0: Yes, well, you're really tough, so so it, work, so it works out well.
1: Yeah. So <laughs> is so I'm going to start off only with like the basic premise that law often requires you to hold two conflicting ideas at the exact same time and to reconcile them. So there's two ways to look at the actual merits of the problem. It's to say that under Georgia law, you acting in your official capacity is the same thing as under like presidential immunity to be acting in your presidential capacity. Right. And and I don't know that those two things have to be the same thing. Even though they sound like they're the same. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I probably think that because I teach federal courts, where basically I'm always telling my students, like, I just told you this thing, and now I'm going to tell you the opposite. And I, they're know. Gonna I know. Both going to be. true. I know. That's thing.
0: all federal courts. Here's one case. You're here's the opposite case. Court. Good luck.
1: <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> I'm basically an expert at telling you both of these things can be true, even though that they seem they they can't.
0: Yes. I've made a career on that, by the way. Go ahead.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so like through the prism of separation of powers avoidance, I think that the fact that president Trump is no longer president. Yeah. Plays a huge role in deciding how a court can respond to him. Yeah. Even if the court is, or any court is making a pronouncement about what it means to be president of the United States, Right. And what acts that you take while you're president are considered president. The fact that he's a former president really matters for a court telling him you have to show up at this place in time. You have to show up to this trial. Right. And so through my prism, I would say there will be avoidance, but not as much avoidance as there would be if this same situation were taking place with President Biden right now.
0: Based on that answer, very thoughtful, by the way, based on that, in my opinion, based on that answer, I, I, my students, this is one of those debates that we I have, I've been having for 32 years with my students, and it, it really gets them going, this going back to civil liability. So under the law, under the yes. Fitzgerald case, for the non-lawyers in the room, presidents are forever immune from civil liability for anything they do in their official acts as president defined unbelievably broadly. I take it maybe you don't like that opinion? The forever part of that, as opposed to the while in office part?
1: Um, I actually don't have a problem with the f- forever part. Okay. I might have a problem with the the breadth of the action that's like a presidential action. Right? So, like, some people say if the president writes something on a napkin, then right. that's, like, presidential speech. Right. Is it? Is it? Or did he just write something on a napkin? Right. Right. Um, But I think it's a really easy line to draw, and maybe that's the benefit of it, to say like basically everything they do is a presidential action, and that's the line we're drawing. It's everything. There's no close calls anymore. And I mean, setting President Trump aside, hoping that it's like the exceptional situation, maybe that's the rule that you want, because it's really easy to apply, and you won't have courts stepping in all the time to try to say, well, was it a napkin, or was it a like sheet of computer paper? Um, and that might be the right division of labor, even if in this individual case,
0: it hurts,
1: (laughs) it it hurts a lot. Yeah. Like maybe he gets away with it in this individual case. I don't know.
0: I, um, I think after 30 years of going back and forth on this, I I think I come out, it shouldn't be a lifetime. You shouldn't be able to assume when they're in office, but I'm not sure it should be a lifetime ban, but I think there has to be some kind of incredibly heightened standard of intent. You know, or something. I don't know, but it feels like it puts the president above the law to say he, no matter what he does, he can never be sealed, sued in civil court for official acts that he act, that he even if he takes them in bad faith and knowing they're against the law.
1: Yeah, I mean, I mean, like the very easy response that doesn't even come close to the line, like what an uh, about an act of domestic violence that occurs during the pendency of the president.
0: Right. Right. Right.
1: right. Like it's, no one would possibly say that that's like a presidential act at all.
0: Right. Right. Exactly.
1: Right. But like calling the Georgia uh, secretary of state. I'm not arguing that that's a presidential act, but I could see how that's closer to the line. Yeah. yeah.
0: And, and he's going and to argue, then, and he's going to argue that for sure.
1: Yeah. And I don't necessarily like I don't think that I I don't think that I don't know why I should hedge. I don't think that. But <laughs> I could see that that's a much closer thing to right. the line fair than an fair act of domestic violence, for example.
0: Fair enough. So going through your article, and again, like on every page, I took, I was like, I could ask ten questions about this, I could ask ten questions about that, um, which is why I wanted you on my podcast. So thank you, thank you for coming on. You said one thing in the in the in the middle of this article. You didn't spend a lot of time on it. As a um, nuclear charged legal realist, though, I couldn't help noticing it. You said, oh no, one, what did I do? <laughs> you said at one point, legal principles don't necessarily equate to the underlying law. And uh, um, I'm not exactly sure what you're saying there, to be
1: So I think – okay, so there's this whole tie between having a right and having a remedy to effectuate that right.
0: Yes. Marbury, right? So Marbury, like vers- the- Marbury versus Madison, ironically, even though there was no remedy in that case.
1: <laughs> exactly. And in Marbury versus Madison, they say – like, for every right, there must be a remedy. Yeah. But you and I both know that there aren't. Correct. Does that actually mean that people don't have rights if there's no remedy to enforce them? If yeah. you're a hyper-legal yeah. realist, you'd probably say no. I I say yes. I'm, like, what am I, like, a legal skeptic? <laughs> I'm not quite a legal realist, I'm like, but I'm not uh, imaginative about this either. I think that there's law beyond what it is that's articulated by courts because courts are bound by all sorts of different rules and doctrines about what kinds of cases that they can take and the form that things have to come up in and the arguments that the parties make in a case. But there is law outside of that. And there are other actors who interpret law beyond courts. I think that you talked about this with Tara Grove on the podcast, right? Like the president. Yes. Um, and Congress all the time. So one of the main things I'm trying to say in this article is just because a court has said, like we're not gonna give Congress a remedy in this case because we can avoid the question and not decide, doesn't mean that Congress doesn't have the better of it under the law and Congress is a legal interpreter and the president is a legal interpreter. And so C law is broader than that. When we talk about executive privilege in court, right, Yeah, that's that's kind of the one where I think it's taken on a life of its own. And what we think executive privilege is based on who decides that question is so far beyond what I think executive privilege actually so,
0: so is. Can I try for one second because that's uh, something yeah. about me you don't know that, that goes right to that issue that I'm kind of confused about. When I, I worked at DOJ for four or five years, I also worked on Iran-Contra. I also worked on a request to the National Archives for President Reagan's documents while President Bush was president. This may sound familiar to, to the audience. Um, so I've worked on the exact case Trump is charged basically you know, dealing with here. Um, but when I was at DOJ, 1987 to 91, first of all, executive privilege was considered something we never do. Last resort, never do it. Like It's a bad look. We don't want to do it. That's A. B, the head of the agency, the very head, had to assert the executive privilege. It couldn't be an underling. So if it was, if it was HUD, it had to be the secretary of HUD. Has, but that seems to have changed, or our idea of executive privilege has changed since 1990. Am I right about this?
1: I think you're totally right. Jonathan Schaub has this paper called The Executive's Privilege, yeah. which basically like outlines the Office of Legal Counsel's opinions on executive privilege and basically how the justice department now understands executive privilege and he studies everything that the justice department has said basically about this um and so yeah it's taken on a life of its own and why because the fox is in charge of the hen house right because courts are saying executive privilege like we're not going to get in there we want to avoid telling the president that he has to turn over particular materials right and now the executive has taken that as license to make executive privilege mean whatever it means and to mean whatever it means before Congress, which is a co-equal branch. Like, just because a court doesn't want to compel the president to turn over material doesn't mean that Congress should be held to the same standard. Like maybe Congress does want to take the president to task. And so this is why I think executive privilege, is not at all. Like this paper came out of me reading an executive privilege OLC opinion and being like you think what and you're citing what case for right. that? Did you even read that case?
0: Right, right. I mean, I got I can I, I cannot tell people how verboten. I mean, I have to be careful what I say here, but when that when 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 Lawrence Walsh, the Iran Contra Independent Council, wanted President Reagan documents in 1990 when President Bush was president We had a slam-dunk defense, not under executive privilege, under the Presidential Recording Act. We had a slam-dunk defense to it. We didn't offer that defense because there was a concern, broadly stated, that it would be viewed by the press as executive privilege. And executive privilege was such a uh, a lightning rod, something George Bush wanted to avoid at all costs. And I think that's – it used to be an act of shame, and now it's a badge of honor, I think.
1: I think you should write about this because like that's not at all what executive privilege is today. And I think you should find a way to talk about the things that you're not allowed to talk about when you're in the <laughs> Justice Department. Right. I like, think find a way to skirt around it and surmise. And
0: I, I, I wish I could I, 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 I And I may and I may do with The Economist in three hours. So thank you for that. Thank you. For, <laughs> thank you for that support. I right, have one last question about this article. We're running, we have like 20 minutes left. I do want to get to your Harvard piece. Unfortunately, I saved the biggest question for last, so I'm going to ask it and then I'm going to shut up and I'm not going to and then we'll move on. Um, I've always thought, my intuition, and I worked at DOJ in a lot of con law cases, I including some battles between Congress and the President. I've always thought that a very a course not taken, a road not taken that might be a better road, is when we don't have a private plaintiff. Or or at least a private plaintiff's stake in the case is very minimal to non-existent, as I think Zivotosky was. Um, Why doesn't the court just say, you guys have the tools. You figure this out. This is not our job. You guys have a battle. Congress wants the president to show up. The president wants to show up. You guys work it out, which is how Robert says really has happened for much of 200 years in one of the Trump cases. I think he's right about that. Why do we need courts at all? Congress can take money away. The president can can enforce laws and, you know, with all kinds of discretion and ways congressmen. Let them fight it out. Why do I need Justice Roberts or God forbid Justice, you know, Thomas to tell me what's going on?
1: So I think that a lot of it happens that way, but sometimes there is a, a logjam, right? Like most of the negotiations between Congress and the president, I'm assuming we don't see. I haven't worked for Congress, and I haven't worked for the president in the capacity where I would see that. But I imagine that this is all the typical... No, you're right about that. I can tell you you're right
0: about that. You're right about that.
1: Okay. Um, And so I think that's how it works the vast majority of the time. And the reason that that works is because of norms, right? Or maybe we want to call that law. But that law isn't seen. And so a president or a Congress that wants to flout it has more ability to flout it than something that's actually seen.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: And I think that's what we saw in the last administration. And I talk about this case that happened during uh, the Bush two administration with Harriet Myers and. The court said, Congress and president go and figure this out, and they tried and tried and tried, and they came back and they got one ruling from a court. And then the Court of Appeals says, okay, fine, we'll decide. They decide the case, and actually Congress and the president are able to figure it out in the shadow of the case law actually happening. So I think that works when everybody wants it to.
0: Fair enough. Fair enough. I, um, I wish the court would use that tool more often, I think. Um, but let's, let's move on. Okay. Um, ex- Harvard Law Review. Enforcement, lawmaking, and judicial review, and I think – if I read it correctly, the real question you're asking, which couldn't be more timely, couldn't be more important, you really have picked the right moment in time to emerge as Yale's Emerging Scholar of the Year, Um, the role of the court in checking executive power, right? I mean, this is just all over the news every day. Do I have it right? That's the central question you're asking in that piece?
1: It is the central question that I'm asking, and I'm asking it Really, like 90 percent of the article is about lower federal courts in doing it, and 10 percent of it is about the Supreme Court to get folks like you interested.
0: <laughs> no, wait a minute. That's not fair. I would have been interested anyway. It's <laughs> Although you're right. I do focus more on the Supreme Court. That's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Um, what – well, that's we, – we, we don't have the same amount of time to go through this as thoroughly. What do you think the proper role of the court should be in checking or not checking executive power? So I'm going to have to caveat
1: out exactly what it is that I did in the paper. Most of the paper is sort of like this descriptive account of a new sort of kind of federal court that we hadn't seen before 15, 20 years ago. At this point, 15 years ago, yes. 20 years ago, no. Um, So most of it is an argument that the lower federal courts have changed. And what we're seeing is changes happening to federal courts doctrine that are meant to match up for against executive power and they're basically rejiggering the tools everybody wants me to say whether i think this is good or bad and i mean you heard it here first i think not taking to the extreme it's a good thing and i think from now on you and i are going to disagree on this podcast
0: okay (laughs) go on
1: and the reason that i think it's a good thing not taken to the extreme which some some of the cases are taken to the extreme Sure, is because there is nothing restraining from the, the president right now other than the lower federal courts from basically making law even when congress says don't do it so uh we talked just a minute ago about congress having the tools with appropriations to not give the president money to do something and they can use that well when the president wanted to build a southern border wall, Congress negotiated a package that did not include funding for the wall. And the president diverted funds away to build a wall. And Congress had tied its own hands to the statute that basically said they needed a supermajority. I can't remember if it was two thirds or three quarters, in order to go back on this right. delegated authority under the National Emergencies Act. And so there is nothing to press back and hold the president to account because the president is the only one at the top of this whole pyramid of the executive department. And they have delegated authority from Congress. They have a huge budget and they have discretion that's in there. So if a a president is using his power for good, I think you and I are on the same page about Yeah, let the president go forward and do what it is that the president is doing. But whether it's President Obama, President Trump, President Bush, or President Biden, when they amass power and use it, contrary to what Congress actually allows them to do in a way that we can see with our own eyes, like that's a problem. That's a problem and someone needs to be able to step in to do something. In an ideal world, Congress would step in and do something about it, but... To quote Argo, I think this is the best bad option we have.
0: <laughs> well, I, I I think that's a very thoughtful and, and probably persuasive response. I guess I feel like if the court announced that in all but the most extraordinary cases it was stepping out, that might motivate Congress to actually get more involved, which I think would be a good thing. Um, I guess where we disagree is I – mean, and, and this is not a zero-sum game. I think the court has to be involved a little. I think I probably think it has to be involved less than you think it has to be involved because – Definitely. Yeah, because I um, – I don't know what to make of this phenomenon. <laughs> the unitary executive theory is – and I've had numerous people on this podcast, experts in that theory, debating, you know, from Michael McConnell to Jed Sugerman to all kinds of – uh, all kinds of people, Mike Ramsey, all kinds of people um, – to me, it's just fantasy. It's just fake. It's ridiculous. It's an absurd notion. It, I'm not saying it's a policy matter. As a constitutional law matter, text and history do not support the idea of the unitary executive, full stop. But the court makes this thing up. and It has terrible consequences in some cases. Um, I, I, I don't trust those nine people or five of those nine people um, at all to get this right. So is this a question of an empirical type of, well— you're saying Congress is terrible. I agree. You're saying without the court, the president would be a dictator. Or I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not, not exactly saying that, but we have too much power. I probably agree. But I think the abuses, the court the, the court is engaged in such abuse. Steel seizure could have been a disaster. I mean, it turns out Truman was kind of puffing about the emergency. But if he wasn't and Americans had died, the court would have been directly responsible for Americans dying. Um, I, I think, there's an argument that as bad as the president is and as bad as Congress is, unelected life-tenured lawyers are worse.
1: I think it depends on the unelected life-tenured lawyer.
0: <laughs> Sorry. Right?
1: Like, so, I mean, so the response to this paper in the Harvard Law Review was a paper that said, like, separation of power suits after after Trump. And the whole thesis was like, I would only agree with this so long as Trump is the president. Um, And I don't, I still agree with it No, I do think that the judges have changed partially because Donald Trump was president and appointed a lot of them. And because this phenomenon is out in the world and people are paying attention to it. Um, But, but I think it's bad for, for example, and I think all of my students are gonna hate me for saying this, President Biden, to say I'm going to issue student loan forgiveness when I said on the campaign trail that I couldn't unilaterally do it, Congress told me it wouldn't do it, and then I unilaterally did it when I was president.
0: Yeah, broken. I, still I mean, think
1: that's bad, right? I, not, I think that I, I, like-
0: I, I don't. I don't agree, but I'm not going to interrupt you. Go ahead. I, I okay. mean, I, I, what's not bad to me is I think Congress gave him the power to modify st- and student loans in times of emergency. That's what he did. So I don't I think the case is completely wrong. But I don't want to get sidetracked onto that. Um Okay. So we won't go
1: down on the merits of that. Yeah. Um, at
0: all. You think we need that, like, you think we need that check. More than I think we need the check, I think. Is that where but, we are?
1: Yeah, I think we need the check. And I'll say courts have this this other idea that like in national security cases they generally defer to the executive. Right? Like that's something in con law class that they talk about. Yeah. And what that has caused is the president to be claiming something is national security when it isn't
0: correct correct that's right
1: and so i don't i don't really know what to do about that because i think probably we need to give the president authority in true national security cases to make decisions but we also want to keep them from claiming something is national security when it isn't and maybe the answer to that is to have to go in front of a court and present your evidence and prove to the court that national security is actually at stake, even if that's in an in-camera proceeding, right? And yeah. maybe that's about you're entitled to the deference, but it's got to be national security and we're not going to let you take the windfall.
0: I think what I think about that, not well thought out on my part, is when a per, when an individual's or even a company's, I guess, individual rights are at stake in the separation of powers dispute, that's one scenario. But when it's just the president and the Congress. Those are the two parties in the case, effectively. Um, I don't know. I feel like sometimes just leaving it. They will figure out a way most of the time. Maybe with Trump, they won't. But most of the time, they will. Anyway, we have five minutes left. So I want to ask you a question that I didn't say I was going to ask you about, but that's raised by something you said that I think is really timely and really important. You said lower courts have changed over the last 15, 20 years. And I, I, this is a, I'm i throwing this question at you from left field. So if you want to duck it, feel free. I agree with your descriptive account 100%. And I'm close friends with lots of lower federal court judges. Most of them are my age, you know, 55, 60, 65. I'm 65. Um, and I think they have a very different mentality than 45- and 50-year-old judges as a generalization. And here's my question. It's off the wall. <laughs> I actually think the rise of the Federalist Society and the rise of the American Constitution Society in law schools, and I don't don't mean students attending necessarily lunchtime presentations, but I mean judges lining up one way or the other with either ACS or FedSoc and then being invited to law school events to do their things, has played a major role in empowering federal judges, lower federal court judges, to feel it's us against them. And if it's fed Soccer against ACS, and I have to pick a side. And and, there are, and if I don't pick a side, bad things are going to happen. So I'm going to do more than the average lower federal court judge 30 years ago, especially when it comes to interpreting opaque Supreme Court decisions, or even non-opaque Supreme Court decisions. And I'll end this monologue with this. The last two Repub- the, most, the two most impactful Republican ju- judges of, of my lifetime not Scalia, not Thomas, but Kennedy. And Judge Posner. I have to mention Judge Posner once every podcast. Um, I knew that too. They they both predate the Federalist Society. And that explains both of them. That explains how we get Republicans who are not crazy, to be honest. Um, I would track that. How we get Republicans who are not extreme. Um, Do you think the role of FEDSOC and ACS both have played a role in empowering lower federal court judges?
1: So I'm not sure. I think it's a chicken and the egg problem, but not quite of the sort that you think. Okay. Okay. The chicken and the egg is, is the, the us against them mentality coming once they are lower federal court judges or as a precondition of being appointed to be a lower federal court judge? That's a great point. And I think, and again, I actually don't think that it's all lower federal court judges or all newly appointed ones at all.
0: Me neither. But Me neither. the ones
1: that stand out, there are, there are some that stand out. And I think that came before. Their appointment, and I think they were deeply steeped in some of these worlds, which brought them to the attention of the decision makers. Um, that's, that's very That's fair. like my general read on it. Yeah. But like, I actually think most lower federal court judges want to be reasonable and probably lament the fact that they're expected not to be.
0: I agree. I agree. I'm I'm actually pretty friendly with Judge Kevin Newsom of the Eleventh Circuit who's a Trump-appointed judge. Um, he and I probably agree on nothing. We are good, for, we are, I consider us friends. I think the world of him, I, he is, I think he's a man of great character. Um, I think, and I think he doesn't take part in that type of thinking, but I think he's the exception. I guess that I would end this by asking you, you said, are they appointed because of that, that personality trait? I don't think necessarily people enter law school with that personality trait, but I do think, when I was in law school and there was no and, – and, so I graduated in 1983. So Federalist Society starts in 1982 and there is no American Constitution Society. It was a whole different atmosphere. It really was. Um, and, you know, I am the de facto Federalist Society person in my law school because my law school won't hire conservatives. something I've complained about before, um, while I'm on the board of ACS. <laughs> so I live in both worlds all the time. I'm not sure the service we're doing anymore. I'm, I'm, I used to think this is great. We have good debates and we have good panels. But I think the zero-sum game part of this is really worrying me, which brings me back to your work. I think what I like best about both of these articles, um, and I say this as someone who's been teaching 33 years and has now done you know, my 99th podcast. So I've, I haven't decided yet what, one, what number 100 is going to be, but I've been talking to the best and the brightest thinkers in our country on this podcast. Uh, I'm very proud of that. What your both of your articles do, is they make very strong points in a conditional way, and I think that's excellent. I think that's legal excellence. I think there are very few things we should be sure about, um, and I want to congratulate you for that because I think that's um, an amazingly strong trait for someone who obviously has strong opinions. But thank
1: the- you. That means that means a lot to me. It's something intentional and something that I get a lot of pushback for. So I really appreciate that.
0: Well, you should not get pushback for it. You should get praise for it. Um, you are getting praise for it from places like the Yale Law Journal. But um, everybody out there listening to this, go read these two articles. Whether you're a lawyer or not, by the way, one of the best things about your writing, I'm not saying it's going to be incredibly easy reading for non-lawyers, but an informed, non, an informed person who knows the news will get a lot out of these articles. And for lawyers and law professors, it will be a, a treasure chest of just provocative ideas that are really interesting that I don't know if they're right or wrong, good or bad, but I want to talk about them. And we did. So thank you so much for coming on this podcast. I really enjoyed it.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: It's been great. Thank you.